Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. And today, you know, I feel like every time I open the show, I say today we've got something special because everybody's special. And I'm not talking about special like a snowflake. I'm talking about special like different. So today I have with me Amy Mariani and she's an attorney, but she does something different. And here's the reason why. Her practice is focused exclusively on mediation. Now you wanna know why, you wanna know how she got into it, you wanna know who the heck uses a mediator and when do they use them. We've got all of that for you. And some of you out there may even think to yourselves, hey, this sounds pretty good. Maybe I should become a mediator. Well, I hope that a few of you feel that way by the end of this show. So please join me in welcoming Amy Mariani to the Inside BS Show. Amy, thanks for joining us. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. All right, so let's talk about mediation. Um, so you were you were uh, a little kid and you're playing, you're in your tree house and two people had a dispute and you said, I'm gonna settle this. And you were like, this is what I wanna do for the rest <laughs> of my life. How did you become a mediator? It wasn't quite that direct, Dave. There were there were a few path detours along the way. I started out uh, my professional career as an attorney, uh, practicing trial work. Basically, I tried cases um, mostly for large corporations in the area of employment, personal injury, and contract disputes. Did that for roughly 15 years, uh, sent my kids off to school and started thinking about what did I want to do when my kids were in college, because I'm a planner. And, uh, you know, I've got the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 30-year plan, all of that. So long story short, I decided I did not want to be tied down to a trial calendar. Uh, as the lawyers in your audience will know, you, if you are a trial attorney, you're basically living on the trial, the trial court schedule. It's not up to you when you take a vacation. It's not up to you whether your kid has a birthday party on a certain date. If the court says come, you do. And I didn't want to live... Uh, you know, my second stage of my career doing that. So I decided, you know what? Mediation is something that I enjoy doing as an advocate. Might be fun to try it out. Uh, gave it a test run as a volunteer after getting some training. Loved it. And um, six years ago, hung up my trial bag and started mediating full time. All right. So you have to tell us your, so your first mediation by yourself, right? Not when you were in training or anything and you had somebody sitting next to you. Your first mediation by yourself, what was the case and what were you thinking as it started out? Because at the beginning, everybody's far apart, right? right. So tell us, tell us about that. Good news for all of my paid clients is that I had a lot of test runs uh, doing volunteer work in the in the small claims court. So, uh, two different answers to your question: if if we're taking the volunteer work versus the paid work, uh, the first very first case that I did on my own in small claims court. I was just sitting there going, typical imposter syndrome. They know I don't know what I'm doing. They know this is my first case. They're gonna see, you know, they're gonna see that I'm sweating through my shirt, all of that fun stuff. But we got it done. They had a good result at the end of the day. And uh, my first paid case, it was very similar in terms of, you know, that sense of imposter syndrome. But then once you get in the rhythm of a mediation as a mediator, 
and you, you are so into it, you don't have time to be nervous. You, you have to just sort of sit there, concentrate, and really focus in on it. Most of my cases, including the first two that I ever did, both paid and unpaid, uh, are contract disputes, you know, fights over money, somebody didn't do something that they were supposed to do. Um, both of them settled, as, uh, as do 95-plus percent of my cases. Great. All right, so... I need to know the secret to getting everybody to put their cards on the table because everybody walks in the room and how do you know, you know, the first thing they say is garbage. How do you know when you're done with the garbage and you're down to, all right, now we're really talking about something that, you know, both sides can, can agree to. It's just a matter of who's going to move a little bit more this way, who's going to move a little bit more this way. How do you get past that initial puffery let's just call it puffery rather than you know bs but how do you get past that initial veneer that everybody throws up? it takes time and it takes trust in me as the mediator and uh in the process itself that usually if it's a full day mediation that usually happens around the halfway point if it's a half day mediation maybe a little earlier because people know that that time is is a little bit more valuable in those contexts um, but it, it does take time and it, it, it takes trust the biggest things that I do basically are uh, ask tough questions ask people to explain to me why they're taking the position that they're taking and then ask them well you know the other side's gonna say this so what's your response to that and that slowly but surely starts chipping away at the positional postures that people are in and then I also ask them you know what's this really worth to you in terms of your time and your stress uh, because those are un the, the, those are factors most people do not take into account when they look at the quote-unquote dollar value of a case All right, so Amy how do you uh, you know I know what I would do if I were if I were on one side I would try and become your best friend and I would try and read through you where the other side was right so you have to have a poker face yourself and then you have to know when to let that poker face down and go, hey, listen, you really should take this. Explain the art of keeping people at a distance until you're ready to bring them in for like because that's, you know, you said it yourself. So the, the first half of the day. It's not wasted, but it's it's posturing, it's positioning, right? So you have to be in control of that. And then you have to know when you can go back to the other side and say, hey, listen, I think you're really close here. You gotta you guys gotta come up with something good. So how do you how do you decide when to do that? A large part of that is instinct developed based on experience. The keys for me are paying attention to the way people react throughout the mediation. So at the beginning of the mediation, the first couple of hours, I'm paying attention to the language that they use, I'm paying attention to their body language, I'm paying attention to their gestures, um, all of those kinds of things to pick up cues as to when people are comfortable, uncomfortable, probably telling me the truth, probably telling me part of the truth, probably not telling me the truth. And once I take all of that information and distill it, I can get a good sense of who the people are and uh, whether they're straight shooters or not. And people are doing much the same thing with me. Uh, you're right, I have to keep that poker face up, but at the same time, uh, I start to use empathy as a tool. And as we're really getting down to the end of it, 
I'll be blunt with people and say, hey, you know, I've done all I can in the other room. They're really saying this is the end game. Um, you know, you've got two choices. You've got the choice of this is what life looks like if you take it. This is what life looks like if you don't. Uh, and then it really becomes an analysis that they have to make because people are their own best judges of what's good for them. All right. Now, um, I'm going to ask you a really tough business question for you, right? Because you you get your work when either the court appoints you or both sides agree that you're the right person for the job, right? So you have to be, uh, you're, you're, every time you're in a room with a litigator, you're, you're marketing, you're selling yourself, right? What happens when both sides agree, Amy's the right person for this, and now you got friends on both sides, right? So you know that you have friends on both sides. How, how is that different than you mediating with two people that you barely know, right? How, how, how is it different for you? That's a really tough situation to be in. And, and, and to be very frank, there are situations where people have asked me to mediate and I've said, I'm probably not the right person because I know you too well. So my rule of thumb is if you're coming over to my house for the summer barbecue, I'm probably not going to be the person that you want to have mediate. Uh, we just we know too much about each other. So uh, I'm perfectly comfortable mediating with people that I know well, but aren't social acquaintances, basically. Professional. Yeah, professional, professional acquaintances. All right. Now, what about um, in a mediation? And I, you know, this is something that just kind of struck me. So as a practical matter, lawyers have to be candid with candid in any proceeding. So they have to be candid with the court. If you lie to the court as a lawyer, there are very serious penalties for that. Is the same candor is that is the same expectation of candor there in a mediation or can you be full of crap in a mediation and it's acceptable because that's what you have to do to advocate for your client that's a really really interesting question and i i my answer as a lawyer is that duty of candor remains throughout the process um, I can tell you that there are other lawyers who have not taken that same view when appearing <laughs> in a mediation with me. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty e easy to pierce through that kind of uh, more than puffery, uh, outright lying, uh, because you've got a lawyer on the other side who knows the situation, knows, this, knows the case. I don't know the case particularly well. I just know what the parties have sent to me. Uh, but if I walk into a room and say, so-and-so just said X, uh, and the lawyer on the other side says, no way, you know, Y is what really happened, and they have documents and evidence, they're going to give me those documents and that evidence to go back in the room and say, you know, X is not what Y, X is not what the other lawyer believes happened. Y is what happened. And I'm not going to make judgments, but... The facts are the facts, and, and if someone can back up their position, that's going to be more influential in a mediation than, than if they can't. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, what happens in the mediation is inadmissible in, in the actual case, right? So, so there's no transcript, there's no, you know, you're not going to write up a report and send it to the judge that Joe Smith, you know, said this and it was a bold-faced lie. Like that's not that's not something that that would happen, right? So none of that's admissible. Correct. There are only a very few circumstances where um, 
what happens in the mediation once we have a signed mediation agreement can be disclosed. And those are things like elder abuse, child abuse, planned commission of a crime, uh, really narrow circumstances. So every mediation agreement that I've ever seen uh, basically indicates these are the circumstances where um, where we might have a, an obligation to disclose things. Um, there's there's a really interesting guy by the name of Jeff Kachavin that you may have run into. Uh, he actually takes the the um, opinion that mediation agreements are worthless because confidentiality doesn't really well. That's, I'm overstating it, but <laughs> uh, he he takes a contrary position. But generally speaking, most mediators believe that. Um, there are only a couple of times where where we will breach that confidentiality. Now let's talk about so your 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 main role is to bring people together and come to some sort of an agreement, but you also play a role in kind of keeping everything fair in that you don't want one side to use the mediation to gain uh, an informational advantage without sharing information from their side. Explain to people exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe articulate it a little bit better than I just did. Sure. There's a process called discovery in litigation where both sides are required to provide information to the other side. Uh, and one fear that people have about the mediation process is that folks will use it to get free discovery, to get extra information from the other side without having to give something up. Part of the way you avoid that from happening is in the structure of your mediation. So sometimes in a mediation, you'll have everybody in the room all at the same time uh, talking throughout the mediation. And that's a great system when it works for the, par the parties in, in question. Um, and there the lawyers will sort of uh, dictate how much information is being fed out from one side to the other. The other way that mediations occur is in caucuses. So each side goes into its own separate room and I basically play shuttle diplomacy. Uh, I feel kind of like Madeleine Albright going back and forth between Israel and <laughs> Palestine. But um, I will, in that case, ensure that the amount of information that's going in both directions is appropriate. And I basically take information in and only feed it out to the other side when I feel it will be valuable. So unless somebody has said to me, Amy, I want you to tell the other side this, I will use my discretion to feed out bits and pieces of information in the sequence and timing that I think is most appropriate to, to end up with a resolution of the matter. Okay. Now, you're, you're licensed in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Are you, are you licensed anywhere else? Are you, are you licensed in? I have an inactive license in Maine, and I'm admitted to a whole bunch of federal courts uh, nationally. So is it mandatory in uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to mediate before uh, litigation or as part of the litigation process in any specific type of case? No, it, it actually isn't. Uh, there are a few court programs in place where you will basically be referred to mediation right away. The federal court has a lot of cases referred to mediation, but you're not required. And, and actually, one of the interesting things that your listeners might want to know about mediation is even if a court orders you to mediation, mediation is a voluntary process. So you may have to show up on the day of mediation, but you can say, no, I don't want to do this at any point in time. And uh, for the uninitiated, just do us a quick favor and explain the difference between mediation and arbitration to people. Some people may not know. 
Mediation is an entirely voluntary process where uh, the two parties basically sit down and try to come to a resolution that's determined by them. The entire process is driven by them and their interests. Arbitration, on the other hand, is basically a mini trial. So the parties come in, they offer evidence to a neutral fact finder, and that neutral fact finder makes a ruling as to one side winning and the other side losing. Okay. So Amy, I want you to uh, take a second, think about this, uh, the answer to this one. I want you to, to talk about when it makes sense to do exactly what you what you mentioned a little while ago and bring the parties all into the same room and when you think it's best just to keep everybody separate is it you know do you hear something do you see something do the party do you wait for the for one of the parties to say hey it would be great if we could just get together and hammer this out i want you to answer that in just one minute because i need to remind people right now that we are brought to you by sandrowski corporate advisors since 1983 sandrowski corporate advisors has provided expert client service to people all over the united states now they are a cpa firm but they have a different perspective you see they focus on dispute advisory business valuation litigation support forensic accounting and risk management they will help you save money on your taxes if you're a business owner or a high net worth individual but sandrowski has an entire area of focus where they will look at financials that are either in dispute or the subject of litigation now why is it important that you work with a cpa firm that has experience in this area well the CPA firm not only has to be able to expertly examine those documents and render an opinion, they also have to be able to do it in a way that is easy for non-financial people to understand. People like me, people like Amy, people like judges and the court. If you have a case, if you have a matter, and you think there's going to be a dispute about the financials, don't use your CPA who does your regular taxes if they've never testified in court before. That CPA is going to write up a report. They're going to get up on the stand. They're going to sweat or they're going to be subject to discovery and they're going to sweat and they may not be able to explain it in a way that is easy to understand. I want you to reach out to Sandrowski today because these folks have been doing this for years. The person who heads up their, uh, their valuation and uh, their forensic accounting area is a guy by the name of John Alfonsi, and he's a college professor in addition to being a working CPA who handles these matters. Why is that important? Because college professors break things down in a way that's easy for people to understand. You can reach out to John. You can reach out to anyone at Sandrowski by calling 866-717-1607. 866-717-1607. Remember, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. You want to build your book of business? I've got a tool for you. It's the same business development plan I use with my clients. I call it My Revenue Roadmap. You can get your own Revenue Roadmap Guide, the same system I use with my clients, and you can get it for free. Here's what you need to do. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com. That's a website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info. 
Download it now for free. You can customize it for your practice. Whether you're a CPA, a lawyer, an engineer, a consultant, a financial advisor, a banker, if you're in professional services, this is going to work wonders for you. RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. Enter your contact info. Download it for free today. We're talking to Amy Mariani. She is a mediator and she's a founder of Mariani Mediation Services. You can reach out to her at 617-279-0540. All right, Amy. So when do you know that it's the right time to bring everybody together for one big party to just get the whole thing over? There are a couple of different things that go into that analysis for me. I do a lot of pre-mediation discussions with counsel. So I figure out uh, before we even start the mediation, who's getting along with whom, who isn't getting along with whom. Um, when they think it's best to separate. So some mediations will start with both parties in different rooms. Uh, other mediations, we're going to stick in there until I feel like we're at a point where both sides need to do some independent reflection and analysis with me asking them some tough questions. So it's, it's really a matter of gut feel, uh, and I use the input from the attorneys significantly. Typically, once we've broken apart, it's rare that we get back together until both sides have agreed on the, ma the majority of the terms. Okay. Now, what types of cases do you, uh, do you work on? What types of cases do you, uh, do you find? Uh, I, I mean, do some cases settle while others don't? Uh, talk about the, the spectrum of cases that you work on and which tend to be, you know, a little bit quicker to settle, which tend to take a little bit longer. The genre of case doesn't really matter uh, in terms of whether it settles or doesn't settle. And the three types of cases that I see most often are employment, personal injury, and business-related disputes. So contract disputes, that kind of thing. Uh, so really, the type of case doesn't matter. What really matters is whether one of the three P's, as I call them, is in play. Power, punishment, or principle. If you've got those three things going on, and they're the primary motivators for one of the parties in the room, that's going to be a really tough case to settle. So my job as the mediator is to see if I can push past the three P's and make people understand just what's at stake. If you take a case um, and you say, I, I want to go to trial, it's the principle of the thing. Well, I'm going to talk to you about how expensive the principle of the thing is. I'm going to talk to you about how much time it's going to take you. And I'm going to ask you questions like, is this causing you to lose sleep at night? Is this causing you to um, you know, have problems at work? All of those kinds of things to make you really understand that if the principle really matters, you're going to have to live with all of these other factors for a period of anywhere from two to five years, depending on what your jurisdiction happens to be. So, uh, you know, that's, that's really interesting. I had, um, uh, I had a client years ago who taught me, um, the best possible litigation lesson. And he said, listen, he said, litigation is not designed to be quick. It's not designed to be fair. And quite frankly, it is, you know, not designed to be inexpensive. It's designed to be expensive because we want, as a society, we want people to settle their differences on their own. Well, that doesn't happen. Thank goodness it doesn't happen because, you know, a lot of people make make a good living handling these types of disputes and most people don't have good dispute resolution skills. Amy, talk about 
when you, when somebody comes to you, maybe a friend comes to you for advice, they have a dispute and you now having been on, on, you know, the, the side of being a lawyer and now being at being a mediator and seeing, you know, every flavor of lawyer and dispute under the sun, what is the advice you give your friends who are business owners when they have a dispute? I sit down with them and I talk to them about what's re what really matters. What is most important to you? Is it being right? And if so, how much are you prepared to go to the mat to be right? Uh, is it the fact that you believe you're owed something? If you believe you're owed something, how valuable is that something in comparison to the time and money you're going to lose and the stress you're going to have to deal with while you're chasing after whatever that something is? Uh, so I try to, to give people alternative ways of resolving their methods, uh, their, their situations like methods like mediation or arbitration or facilitation. Those are all relatively low cost ways to resolve a dispute in comparison with litigation. My fees are basically about, they're, they're equivalent to maybe a day's worth of a lawyer's work. Now, let's talk about um, the, the business of Mariani Mediation, right? How do you go about getting clients? Because you're, you're walking a tightrope. It is really, you want, you want to have relationships with these people, but like you said yourself, your relationship has to be good. It has to be cordial, but it's got to be professional. So you're not, you're not, you can't be seen by one lawyer having a beer with another lawyer, right? You got, it's got, you got to be really careful. So talk about your business development activities for people who are out there. Maybe there's a lawyer in Oregon who's thinking of going into mediation. Has it been easier to, to get cases as a mediator than it was as a lawyer or just different? I'd say it's a little bit different. Um, it's, Probably equally difficult because in both cases you have to demonstrate expertise and you have to develop trust. If you don't have the trust of the person who makes the phone call to you initially, you're probably not going to get that case. Um, most of my referrals are word of mouth and most of them either are people who know me directly or they're people who know me through the second layer of of, uh, of folks so it's important to develop those relationships it's important to get out there in professional organizations be seen uh, and do good work and that usually turns into multiple engagements so i love to tell the story of my one of my very first engagements with a professional organization um, I got a case from that a person in that organization, and it, I'm now on the fourth generation of cases from that one engagement. Uh, and that's, that's a function of I developed the relationship and developed the trust with that one individual. They recommended me. The other side said yes. And now, you know, I've done the same thing. I've cultivated the relationships down the line. Uh, but you're right. You know, I can't just go out and have beers with 85 different people one week and <laughs> expect business to come in from it. Uh, and, and I'm very careful. If they are people that I've developed any kind of uh, professional social relationship with, I make sure the other side is very comfortable with me uh, having that professional and social relationship with the other person before I agree to take the case. Talk a little bit about court-appointed work. Is there is there court-appointed mediation, and is that a function of uh, getting to know the judges, or do, do you is it like like the public defender's office where you go on a wheel and your name is just called? How does court-appointed work happen? That 
varies tremendously from state to state, and a lot of that honestly is dependent on the resources that your particular state has decided to put toward, um, toward mediation. So there are certain states, Florida is one of them, where it's um, a lot easier to get court-appointed work because the, the state has made a greater commitment to court-appointed work than other states. Massachusetts used to have a, a fairly robust program, but over time, because of budget constraints, that program's been cut and cut and cut. So now these days, most of the mediations in Massachusetts occur as a result of private involvement, uh, as opposed to a judge saying, yeah, you're going to go mediate this thing. And is there, is it, is mediation a kind of practice where you think to yourself, hey, listen, I did a great job, but the result just wasn't there. Is there a way, what, I guess what I'm asking is, is there a way for you to demonstrate to both sides that you really did an, an enormous job, but you know the parties were just never gonna come together? 99% of the time, the lawyers and I have had a discussion at some point where we're like, you know, this really should settle. And the lawyers have a, maybe a slightly different perspective on the settlement value than I do. But, you know, the vast majority of the time, the lawyers and I all think, okay, this case really should settle. And you'll have a party who just doesn't have realistic expectations. And I can go in multiple times and try to re-engage those expectations. But they, are, you know, they want what they want. And one of those three P's is in play, power, punishment, and principle. Uh, those are going to be really tough cases to settle. But most of the time uh, when I walk away from a mediation, I'm actually all of the time when I walk away from a mediation, the I I'm convinced that the lawyers know that I did everything that I possibly could. And I will follow up after a case has, um, has adjourned for the day. Uh, I'll follow up a week later or two weeks later or, you know, when I know there's a major deadline coming up in the case and say, hey, can I help you? Uh, is there is there more that I can do to, to see if we can move this thing forward? And I've gotten a number of cases resolved, not on that initial instance, but, uh, you know, three, four weeks later when the parties have had a chance to reflect and go, you know, that offer on the table sounds a lot better than sitting for a deposition. You know, that That's also an excellent business development strategy, that follow-up strategy, because you're going the extra mile. I know, I know a lot of mediators that join mediation groups or organizations and they wait for a case to be dropped in front of them, they handle that case and then they never think about it again, right? So it's very, very smart. One question I had um, while, you were, while you were saying that and I thought of it earlier, I, I guess I should have asked it earlier in the interview, but I'll ask it now. Can you speak directly to the parties in the case? I mean, obviously their attorney's always gonna be there, but can you address the parties directly or do you, do you, you, know, do you always have to address your comments to the lawyer and then basically the lawyer gives them the okay to answer? My personal preference is to talk directly to the clients whenever possible. There are some lawyers that will say, nope, I want everything to go through me. And if that's the case, I respect that, that uh, directive. But I try to talk to and with the parties themselves as much as possible because at the end of the day, the parties are the ones that are going to have to live with the consequences of their decisions. And have you had a, a case or, or cases where you probably mediated at the outset, 
you didn't come to an agreement and then they went through discovery and spent tens of thousands of dollars. And then somebody said, Hey, let's get back into mediation. I just want this to be over. <laughs> After they get a bill or two that, that frequently happens. Yeah. It, it's, it's a very common thing to happen. <laughs> All right. Um, let's, uh, let's talk, uh, briefly now about, uh, the best way for people to determine whether a mediator is for real. What advice would you give lawyers who are out there now, regardless of the jurisdiction that they're in, if they're selecting a mediator, how should they go about selecting a mediator? That's a really good question. And it's something that I don't think people give enough attention to at times when making a choice. They'll often call a service and say, hey, I have a case that needs to be mediated. The service will say, I have these people on these dates. They'll pick one of them and not really think strategically about who the right person is. Uh, I like to talk about why people retain me, and oftentimes that's because of what I used to do. I used to represent Fortune 250, so I know how to talk to people in-house. I know how to talk to business people uh, at large corporations, and that makes me a lot more effective and efficient when I'm in a mediation and somebody like that is on one side of the, the, the case or the other. So, you know, that's one of the factors that should come into play. What's the, what's the mediator's prior experience? It doesn't need to be in the specific area of the law, but what kinds of cases have they dealt with? Uh, what types of people have they worked with? That's key. The other thing is, does the personality fit? the situation. Some cases you're going to need somebody who can hold the hand of somebody who's very vulnerable, uh, particularly in a personal injury case or a sexual harassment case. You're going to have to you're going to have to deal with somebody who really believes that they are a victim, uh, regardless of, of whether or not they're going to win or lose the case. Their mindset is I'm a victim and they have to be treated a certain way. If you get somebody who comes in and goes really heavy and hard on them, you're probably not going to get the best result. Uh, conversely, you've got some cases where you're dealing with business folks who, unless a judge comes in and says, you know, this is how it's going to be if you go into a courtroom, they need to hear you're going to lose, you're going to lose hard, and this is why. Uh, so you need to think about what's the dynamic at play in, the, in your case and find the right personality fit. Some people can only mediate uh, in that you know, touchy-feely way. Some people can only mediate in that you know, hard rule, rule of law kind of way. There are other mediators who can sort of work on a sliding scale between the two, depending on how things go. So think about what those factors are in your case very carefully. Ask other lawyers and see who they have used and really like to use. Recommendations, personalized recommendations are the best thing out there. That's great. All right, now give us your give us your best negotiating tip. I wanna I wanna go to one movie, my wife wants to go to the other movie. Uh, how do we come to an agreement? Or even, you know, even uh, you know, more applicable. I got a I, I have a, a business deal. And we seem to be far apart. What are what's some advice that you have for us to come together from a negotiating perspective? I'm going to tackle the business deal because <laughs> I still can't get the movie agreement in this household. <laughs> I I understand. I understand completely. I have a 15 year old, a 17 year old, two dogs, and a husband, and I'm outnumbered every time. Yeah, the dogs always win. I I promise you that. 
right. So in a, in a business deal, right, we're, we're uh, pretty far apart, but everything's cordial. How do we come to some sort of an agreement? What advice do you have for us? The best thing that I can do is uh, tell you to listen and listen carefully. Listen for what's being said and listen for, to what's be, not being said. Uh, really ask probing questions about why people are taking the positions that they're taking. If you sit back in a negotiation and somebody makes an, a demand and you say, okay, I've, I've heard that demand, can you tell me why you're looking for that? You're gonna get a heck of a lot of information that's gonna be really, really useful to you. Uh, in, in making your decision about whether that's a good deal or a bad deal for you. And the less you can say and the more you can make the other person talk, the better held your negotiation position is going to be. And is that, if I said to you, what's the biggest mistake you see people making, is, would that be the biggest mistake, spilling the beans, giving, giving away too much too soon? definitely one of them. The other one that uh, I think people make is they don't think about the totality of their circumstances before they sit down at the negotiating table. They only think dollars and cents until they are challenged to do otherwise. And that makes it really hard for people to make solid and informed decisions. Uh, that also means that they often come in unprepared to deal with things like um, other professionals that may be needed to make good decisions in the instance. Uh, I do a lot of cases involving business divorces. So there you're dealing with assets, you're dealing with liabilities, you're sometimes dealing with real estate, you might be dealing with ESOPs, you might be dealing with a whole host of business related issues. If you don't have a solid team of advisors already lined up, with whom you've spoken about these issues, you can come in and think you're making the greatest deal on the planet, walk out the door and go, oh boy, I'm gonna have a huge tax bill. You need all of those players in place. And so if you're only thinking dollars and cents prior to the mediation, you're probably making a misstep. That's great. Now, you said you're, one of your competitive advantages is that you've been you know, in high stakes situations with large firms. Talk about uh, one of the things that I heard you say that seemed a little different uh, to me than, than other people who I've heard talk about mediation it was pre-work. And now you don't necessarily, a lot of times you can't bill for some of that pre-work, right? Some of it you can, some of it you can't. So that's gotta be doing the pre-work on your part. That, has ha that must have been part of what has led you to have such a high success rate. Talk a little bit about that. Something that I've built into my practice from day one, in large part because as an attorney, I walked into a number of mediations where no pre-work occurred and it felt to me as if we were starting behind where we should have been starting. The mediations that I walked into as an attorney where I'd spoken with the mediator before and my client had an opportunity to really engage in the process and understand what the mediator was looking for, generally were far more productive and far more efficient. So that saves everyone time and money. So if I can build into my package price for my mediation services a certain amount of pre-preparation that I know is going to allow me to design a better process, uh, and I know is going to give my clients better results, I'd be a fool not to do it. That's, if I were selecting a mediator, one of the things I would ask is, 
explain your process to me. And if that process didn't include exactly what you just outlined, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with them because we spend the whole first half of the day getting the mediator up to speed. And where that's time that we could be doing something else. I mean, we could, you know, we could come to an agreement hours earlier, or we could figure out that we're too far apart hours earlier. So I like it. I think that's, I think that's tremendous. All right, Amy, I'm going to ask you now to take a minute and think of three things, three things you want folks to take away from our time together. As I remind them once again, that we're brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You heard me talk about Sandrowski's uh, business valuation service, their dispute uh, advisory service. If you want to reach out to them, you can call them at 866-717-1607. They also do tax mitigation. So if you're thinking of selling a business or you're an individual who has a significant amount of tax exposure and you want a fresh set of eyes on it, give Sandrowski a call, 866-717-1607. Also remember, you got a, a free gift coming to you for watching and listening to Amy and I today. All you need to do is go to revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info, and you can download the same guide I use with my clients. It'll help you build your book of business using relationship-based business strategies. Some of the strategies we talked about with Amy today, you can put that into a plan and have the plan ready to go. It doesn't matter if you're a consultant, an engineer, an architect, a CPA, or an attorney, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, download your guide for free today. All right, Amy. So uh, before you give us the three things, I want to remind folks what your phone number is. If you want to reach out to Amy, you can call her at 617-279-0540, 617-279-0540. If you're an email person, we're going to put her email down in the show notes. We'll also put her website there. You can go to her website and check out everything that's on there. All right, Amy, what are the three things we should take away from our time together today? First, listen. If you listen carefully, you are going to get valuable information and probably a better result in negotiation. The second, be curious. Ask questions about why the other person is taking the position that they're taking. Again, that's going to give you very valuable information and help you make a better and more educated decision on the position that is being advocated. Uh, and third, consider mediation early and often when it comes to dispute. It's going to save you time, it's going to save you stress, and it's going to save you money. That's wonderful, Amy. Thank you so much. This was an absolutely fantastic show. Thank you for joining us today. You are a wealth of information. Thank you, Dave. Alrighty, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. I want you to reach out to Amy Mariani. You can call her at 617-279-0540, 617-279-0540. This is the Inside BS Show, and I'm Dave Lorenzo. We'll be back here again tomorrow with another great interview. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.